And thank you all for being in the house today, worshiping. I love that song. There's so much power in those words. Um, and uh, the, the song is called Whole Heart. The, the song is about um, how our hearts can be made whole. And, you know, really, this is the desire of every heart to be whole, to be well, um, to be saved, to be content, to be at peace and full of joy. And, and regardless of how you define what it means to be saved, to be content, to be well, or to be with joy and peace, uh, on days when life is torn to pieces um, and every bit of joy is drained out of you, a whole heart um, enables and, and, and allows something greater and stronger and better to replenish and restore that joy and that peace and the life and the, really the vitality and the strength that we, we might lose grip of. There's always, uh, there's always something that lifts us up no matter how far we've been knocked down. You know, a whole heart isn't one that never struggles or, or never stumbles, but one that is always being healed and always rising back up. But there's a secret to having a whole heart. There's a secret to finding a whole heart, and it's not much of a secret um, because I think you know it, and I think we all know it, but I think we can forget this easily. If you're a Christian, you know this, and if you're not a Christian, um, and you're just here to see and, and, and confirm that uh, people that are are crazy or whatever else you've heard about Christians, regardless of, 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 your, uh, of where you're at in life, if you're a Christian, though, if you're a Christian, um, we believe, we believe that to have a whole heart, God has to have our whole heart, Right? That, that to have a heart that is well, to have a heart that is whole, it requires a transaction. It requires that God be in possession of it. It requires that we surrender our whole, our entire hearts to Him. There's a connection between our condition, the condition of our heart, and the posture of our hearts. That's what we're trying to say, that there's a connection between the condition of our heart and the position or the possession, or who possesses the posture of our heart. And, and maybe this is a backdoor approach at getting you to examine your heart. I think this is an okay way of doing this. Um, understanding your heart, uh, maybe a way to approach that is to ask the question, how's your heart doing? That, is your heart well? Is your heart whole? And if it's not, maybe something else is going on. And, and this is not a question of how much do you sin, or how much have you sinned, or how good have you been to counter the bad that you've done. I'm talking about how much joy do you have? How much peace do you have? How content are you? How well is your soul? And it's not just about the amount, but it's about how sustainable is your joy? How sustainable is your peace? How secure is your contentment? How secure are you? with where you're at in life and the things that you're going through, you know that part of you, part of you is, in, in, is intangible. The soul that we can't really put a finger on, we can't really describe it, but we know that it's so present and so real, so pressing at times. And if things are well, could that suggest, or if things aren't well, could that suggest that there's a disconnect between you and God? Could it suggest that you and your Creator are not where you need to be, right? The relationship has been severed, it's been broken, and maybe everything else that you blame or point to is just a side effect of something deeper, something more necessary. You know, life is all about monitoring our hearts, and, and it's all about protecting our hearts, looking into our hearts and seeing how things are. And, and, and we, we've heard this verse before, Proverbs 4, um, says to guard your heart above all else, above everything else that you do. Guard your heart, because life flows from it. It's the source of life, so you can determine how well your soul is by looking and examining and trying the condition of your heart. So I ask the question again, how is your heart doing today? 
Maybe you don't get up every morning, look yourself in the mirror and say, how's your heart doing? That might be a little bit weird. Maybe you should do that. Maybe we should be honest about the condition of our hearts. Is it whole? Are they whole? Does God have your whole heart? Could there be a connection there? Or could there be a disconnect there? You know, every day we take steps toward whatever is next. Sometimes we know the next step is super important. Other times we don't know what is around the corner. But the point is that we all have a next step to take. But the important thing to know is the condition of our heart, the posture of our heart will make a big difference in that next step. The quality of our next step, the impact of our next step will be, will be, will be influenced by the condition of our heart. And even if you're going through something that you didn't bring on yourself, you know this, don't you? That when you take a next step, whenever you're going through some stuff, when your heart's not where it needs to be, you're not really sure about the good, the, the, the soundness or the, you know, uh, the long-term effect of that step being for your good, right? That the impact of that next step, the quality of that next step, the goodness of that next step will be determined by the condition of your heart. Maybe that's why sometimes you just stand still, right? Because you know if you take another step, it's not going to be good. But I think there's a better way to approach life. So before we get to whatever is next, whether it's just lunch in a couple of minutes or maybe some big leap you've got to take, professionally, personally, uh, even bigger, I ask you the question, what's the next step you need to take to ensure that your heart is in the best place? That's why we come here on Sundays, and maybe you don't. Maybe this isn't why you come, but I think this is a good reason to come. That when we we know that we've all got to monitor our hearts, and the question should be pressing on us every single day, but especially on Sundays when we meet. What is the next step that you need to take to ensure that your heart is in the best place? Because that may be the most important question that we could possibly ask ourselves and consider every single day. Now. If you've been here, we've been talking about Nehemiah, and we've been following Nehemiah around um, in his journey in life, and we've talked about rising up. We've talked about bowing down. Nehemiah rose up to the, to the challenge. Uh, then he led the nation to bow down and worship before they got their hands to the work. Um, but today, we're going to read about Nehemiah's next step. It's not his last step. The story will continue, as every one of our stories will continue. But this is the next step that Nehemiah has in his journey. Nehemiah was compelled by God to, have, to leave a life that was um, most would die for, a life of luxury, a life of privilege. God called him to leave that post and take a new role, helping to rebuild the community of God's people back in Judea. And Nehemiah, he counted the cost. It was immense, but he considered the gain, and he rose up to a more fulfilling, more gratifying, and more promising future. He left everything behind. And listen, the future did not immediately pop as better. But because he trusted God, because he knew that God knows best, he knew that he had a once-in-a-lifetime purpose, a once-in-a-generation purpose in front of him, he could not let it slip away. Nehemiah knew that God's plans for his life, for our lives, are of a higher quality, a higher grade of pleasure and joy. And he knew that our fulfillment comes from glorifying God and being in God's will. So sometimes we know that saying yes to God can be very difficult and very daunting. And it was for Nehemiah for a lot of different reasons. We all struggle with saying yes because of what it might cost us. But we can rest assured knowing that stepping up to what God calls us to do, what we need to do, it may bring with it grief and fear and anxiety, but God's presence will be with us and is greater than the fear that you may face. Whatever our next step is, God will be near. God will be there, more importantly.
Whereas Nehemiah's success made his yes difficult as he came to this community of God's people who were downtrodden in derision. They were suffering. Their situation was far worse and they had far more stacked against them. Their walls had been down for too long, not just physically but spiritually. They had distanced themselves from God's will for too long. And what we see in the story of Nehemiah, what we see in so many of our own stories, is that being distanced from God leads to us being damaged by the world. It just happens that way, right? We get banged up by the world when we separate from God, when we have a distance between us and God for whatever reason, whether it was something we decided to do or something done to us that we couldn't really you know, see coming and it hurt us. The farther, the longer we are distanced from God, we will become damaged by the world. And Nehemiah navigated those difficult waters to confront the people about their wounds. And he calls all of us today that we need to rebuild the walls around our heart. We need to restore that barrier, that filter, that consciousness that helps us identify what is good, what is bad, what is healthy, and what is hurtful. We don't always like to do uh, certain things because we do that and to address that because we feel judged. We feel held back. The alternative is far worse, and we know this. So it's good to examine and bring to light the things that we've kept in the dark for too long. The people of Israel's literal plight is a picture of the situations that we find ourselves in when we've left God out of the conversation for too long. And then we wonder, maybe it's too late. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you've left God out of the conversation for so long, and you think, well, it's just too late to start now. Listen, it's never too late. It's never too late to rise up and rebuild, to be healed, and to be made whole. But we've learned from Nehemiah, before we can rise up and build, we've got to bow down and worship. And this is the best part of the story, in my opinion. Before we can strengthen our hands for the good work, we've got to surrender our weaknesses into God's hands. God does not expect us to come to the project or the day, the challenge in front of us, and be prepared and be fully equipped. He expects us to have weaknesses. He understands that we have weaknesses and worries and fears and failures with us. He says, just surrender that to me, and I'll strengthen your hands. God's hands can heal our hearts. He can give us help to walk again, help us work on whatever He has called us to do, whatever we might have walked away from before, whatever left us weak and vulnerable and exposed and defeated, God can bring, make new again. God can rebuild. Nehemiah led the nation side by side to rebuild their walls, to protect their city, to secure their own lives, and all this is a symbol of what we all should do with our hearts. Against the odds, against the opposition, against being bullied and belittled and opposed, they were as they were, they pressed on and they completed the project. Nehemiah 4 tells that story and here's how Nehemiah sums up the, 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 the first part of this project. If you got a Bible, Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah 4, 15 through 20, um, Nehemiah himself summarizes this early part of the journey for us. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked on the construction while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall, those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held weapons. So they were prepared for the fight that would entail with this project. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people that the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight 
for us. And it says that they continued to work and they, they, they made progress and eventually they completed this wall of protection around their city, around the city of Jerusalem. But the mission was just beginning because the community was still unorganized and held and had many things that were in need. And, and, and the private, personal lives of all the people, there needed to be th- needed things that needed to be addressed so that, no one, so that no one was missing out on what God wanted to do. See, Nehemiah wasn't just sent to lead a building project. He was sent to bring the people together and to bring the community to the place that God wanted them to be as a people. And I think the moral of the story early on is that building the walls were an important first step, but the next step would be focusing on the lives within those walls, the quality of their lives, the condition of their hearts. Because again, it's from the heart. It's from within that all of life comes from, where our decisions are made, where our person shines or shades. And this is important to kind of make a distinction and to kind of help us understand how this relates to us as Christians in in our world today. God's mission in the Old Testament was to establish Israel as an irreplaceable example and an effective presence in the world. And if not for Israel in the ancient world, there was no light. There was no influence. There was no knowledge of the one true God. There was no example. There was no presence, right? And God took this to the next level with the church because as Israel was confined to one place on the planet, the church has been spread all over the globe. And God's desire for the church is that we be this active presence in every community so that without it, without us, something would be noticeably absent. That's what God wants for us. That's why it's important that our hearts be where they need to be. When it's on its game, society and culture may not admit it, but their thoughts would be, we cannot live without the church in our community. And for this reason, for this to happen, the church can't just be known for these tentpole services. Our faith can't just be branded with a few emotional experiences. There's got to be some follow-through. There's got to be some gaps that will be filled. Nehemiah, again, proves a role model for the faith community, for us and for them. We see him committed to integrity and purity and faithfulness to emphasize that it's not enough to say, yeah, my marriage and my morals and my finances, my walk with God, they need some work. But we've got to take the next necessary steps to make them work and to make things work as God would have them to. Every one of us has dreams. We, we, we say things like, well, I hope things would be better. I wish things would be better. I pray for things to be better. If you have a vision, you have a desire for how you would want your life, your family, your relationships, your professional, whatever it is, if you have a will and a desire for how things you would like things to be, we need to know that making your vision stick lives and dies by that next step, that we can never just stand still. Every next step is another step closer to where you want to be. Nehemiah puts legs on his vision as well as model the kind of character God wants in all of us uh, as his people. And and the, the idea is that God doesn't just want us safe and confined within our community's walls. He wants to, us to be whole within our hearts so that we can live and shine and be an example for God in our world. He's going, Nehemiah is going to hold accountable the leaders in the community. We'll see him fend off detractors and give his, us perhaps one of the best quotes in the entire Bible. Nehemiah sends a pretty clear message and Nehemiah knows that he's being watched. And Nehemiah knows that his vision would only be as believable as he was. So he models what he is preaching. He models what he stands for. And the same should be true for all of us 
amidst a corrupt and shady political environment and the people in deep reproach where no one expected the best out of anyone. Nehemiah is going to draw a line in the sand. So let me kind of just fill in the gaps here real quickly for you as to what goes on as Nehemiah begins to take the role of governor and take the role of organizing a civil a society that is you know, sound and organized in, in a community of God's people. Um, so the deal is Nehemiah begins addressing some of the, the concerns and the, the condition of the people's lives. Um, and, and, and now don't check, on me, don't check out on me yet because this isn't going to get you know, into bureaucracy and it's not going to get too boring um, because this will all make sense. And the biggest problem in Israel, this might surprise you, the Israelites were in massive debt. And you think you can't relate to biblical stories. That's just a joke, right? That's, that's a bad joke. We've all been there, right? They were, they were in far more debt than we would ever think to be in. Okay, here's the deal. Nehemiah showed up. Most of the men working on the project from the surrounding villages had left their wives and their children for a season or two to commit to this project. They weren't getting paid, by the way. Um, So many of them, they actually put their land up as collateral. They put their land up as collateral to uh, protect and sustain their families. And the men had been away for so long rummaging through the ruins. Back home, the women began asking for food rations for them and their kids and began handing over all the money that they had um, as was demanded. So part of this process, they had to mortgage their homes in order to pay their taxes and to pay these uh, fees uh, because the men weren't getting paid for their labor. So the women literally mortgaged their homes to pay for their bills and to sustain their families. Even some of the kids were sold into servanthood just to protect the homes and the lands of each family and to keep the women from being taken into far worse situations. The people got into so much debt, they began borrowing money from foreign merchants and banks, and the interest rates were insane. So it was just a mess, and it was only getting worse. And Nehemiah comes in. He's very wealthy. He's very, very wealthy. He'd been making bank for years as the emperor's right-hand man. And he has a line of credit from the emperor. So he comes in with this generous heart, and he begins paying off the debt of all these families, of all these men, women, and children. So this frees up and enlists more and more to join his team. And many of the men had quit. They'd given up. They thought, wow, we're just, you know, they actually had went to the foreign nations and began working as slaves to protect their family and their wives and their children. So things finally start to shift back and Nehemiah begins to build a team and the society begins to heal. Um, and you can read all of that, uh, the people that Nick comes and joins Nehemiah um, in the story. But then some of the Jewish leaders who had been in place before Nehemiah got there um, begin to, to kind of observe and, and they begin to meet and kind of wonder, you know, wh- what can we do to kind of, you know, get the, the spotlight off of Nehemiah? They didn't necessarily like Mr. Superhero coming in and acting all sanctimonious and paying off the debts of the poor and, you know, and, and they begin to think, you know, who is this guy? And one of them spoke up in a meeting and said, listen, this guy's too rich for his own good. This guy's too generous. But this might actually be an advantage for us. And they saw an opportunity. So knowing Nehemiah was soon to be taking their place and replacing the government that was in place that had been set up by Persia before, knowing that he had favor with the emperor and was probably going to replace all of them once things got in motion, they go around and they begin paying off the debt to the foreign nations that many of their families still had. And they begin, they take the families into debt to themselves and they raise the interest even more. And they convince some of the families that Nehemiah had paid off, paid the debts off, they convince some of the families to borrow even more money using fear-mongering and telling them that Nehemiah wasn't always going to be around. So they're thinking, Moneybags is here, and he's paying off everybody's debt. So if he's going to pay off the debt, he can pay us. 
Right? So they enslave the people as many as they can, thinking Nehemiah's just going to pay us back and we're going to make bank and we'll get out of here rich as can be. So they tricked many of the people back into debt in this very fragile time. And Nehemiah finds out. And he is ticked off, as you would expect him to be. But the way he responds is so unique, and it's so different than probably anybody ever would respond to this. He had used his own money to bail people out, and now his own people, supposed to be under his leadership, are working against him in the nation itself. So Nehemiah, wanting to emphasize the community that God is trying to build, the standards being different, maybe that we even would imagine that he goes far and beyond what we would think is righteous or decent. Nehemiah leverages his authority and calls the leadership into account in Nehemiah 5, verse 6 through 9, is his response to these corrupt politician, bankers, whoever you want to put in the category. There was a lot of them. Nehemiah says, I became very angry when I heard the out, their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting interest from his brother, so I called a great assembly against them. And I said, according to our own ability, we have redeemed or paid off our Jewish brethren who sold themselves to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? And he's talking about how they took him into debt. Will they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. So he calls their bluff. He calls them out for their corruption. And then look at the connection that he makes in verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? Nehemiah takes this to an extreme that no one had ever thought about before. Nehemiah says, the way you treat people reflects your faith in God. The way you treat them and the way you use them, the way you act toward them, it reflects your heart, it reflects your condition and your connection to God. He says, guys, we stand here because we have favor with God. We have been given a second chance. And we act as if we don't have a moral obligation to do what is right. Let me say this regarding to God deserving our reverence and our awe and our wonder. Something in us pushes back against this. Notice Nehemiah makes that connection. He makes a connection between our moral behavior, our moral behavior and our heart's posture, our heart's posture, right? Their behavior wasn't suggesting they didn't fear God, but Nehemiah says there's a through line. He pretty much says this, what you do, especially to whoever is next to you, reveals who you worship. Whoever, whoever. If we worship God, we will respect everybody. We will realize that what we do and what we say and how we act and behave in regards to everybody we're ever eyeball to eyeball with reflects how we feel, reflects what we've done, reflects our connection to God. Because everybody in front of us is also belongs to the same God that we worship, right? Now, here's a secret I want to tune you into. Those who don't worship God or those that don't worship Him as they should or don't put Him first mostly live a take take, take lifestyle. We live, a lot of people live in this world. I've been there before. We've been there before. When God is not first, when we don't worship God properly, we live in a, live in a way that says, I got to take and take and take because it's all about me and I got to get what I can when I can. And if I got to step over you or push through you or jump over you, I'll do it. We often lose focus on the people that we should be living for 
And we focus on those that we shouldn't be living for or things that we shouldn't be living for. But you know, it's really at the heart of that kind of lifestyle. When we don't worship God, we worship something or somebody else. We bow to him or to her, to work, to money, to our dreams, our desires. And all those things do is take, take, take. So we are constantly taking from somebody because somebody is constantly taking from us. We are being drained and emptied. And listen, if your life revolves around something or somebody that always empties you, no wonder you're always emptying others. Because your life is revolving around things that will never replenish you and always take from you. Here's my advice, if that's you. Run, run, run to a God who gives you peace and life and perspective. The reason we resist God is because as God, He does indeed have a will for us. He does say no to some things. He does say yes to other things. We reject His will, but the alternative is never accepting anything better. We always accept a worse lifestyle. God may ask you to give up X or to give Y, but it's because God wants to bless you and it's because He wants what's best for you. And listen, if we Christians don't have a life and don't live uh, from a place of worshiping God and loving one another, we send a bad message about who we are. We give the enemy a reason to taunt us. We lose our credibility in our necessary role within our communities. Nehemiah says, guys, we're not having this. Verse number 10, he says, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury or this interest making. Restore now to them even to this day their land, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, all a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine, the oil, and all you've charged them. He says, give it all back to them. Land that you've seized, possessions that you've taken, money that you've taken. So they said, we will restore it. We will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them because Nehemiah didn't trust them. He said, no, 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 it's not going to be enough. You're going to swear in a covenant with God that you are going to follow this promise. And he says, I shook off the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake off each man from his house and his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, he should be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. But look what comes next. And here, what comes next tells us why they said, Yes, sir, when he held them to this. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. Nehemiah says, For 12 years, I refused my salary. I refuse to live the line of credit that my emperor gave me. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over them, but I did not do so because I feared God. Nehemiah says, for 12 years, we did not tax the people because I had a bank account that was able to sustain the nation. Who would do that? Who in the world would live by that kind of approach. Nehemiah wanted to be different and distinct from the rest of the world, from his own people who had fell into sin. And the more he did this, it gained him respect. It gained him moral authority. With the weak, with the wicked, everyone knew where Nehemiah stood. And all along the way, we see Nehemiah taking the necessary next step to model this radical commitment to God. In a world of takers, Nehemiah vowed to be a giver. 
because he trusted in a God who was sustaining him and providing him peace and joy and contentment. Think about your, your personal lives, your professional lives. Are you a taker or a giver? And sometimes we think we take from the right person and we give to the wrong person, but that wrong person just takes from us too, don't they? Nehemiah says, I'm going to be a giver, not just monetarily, but in life. I want to always be a person that gives life and gives hope and gives mercy and gives love and gives joy and gives peace. And he asks us today, will you follow in these steps? Are you that committed to seeing the walls effectively protect you, your family? As a church, are we committed to live by that radical standard that no one ever says, this has got to be the way. But the the Word of God, the Scripture, the Spirit compels us to live in this radical, exemplary, respectable way that always gives and puts out good into the world, into your world. If there's an area of your life that does not exude integrity and doesn't exude commitment to God, grace, mercy, and love... We all have these parts of our hearts that we let linger. We defend them. We allow, to, uh, we allow them to through us to put junk back into the world. Maybe we've got stumbling blocks and we've got, uh, uh, we've got things that we've held on to. Maybe you've held on to it because it makes you popular. It makes you powerful. It makes people accept you or like you. Nehemiah knew he could make a lot of friends with his wealth, but he laid his power down for the sake of the few, for the sake of the weak. It comes down to what's the next step for you that you need to take to ensure that your relationships function the best, that your purity remains intact, that your family remains on track, that as an employer you represent the kingdom of God, that money doesn't control you, but you've given it to God, that He can control it. The difference in this point of view is we often focus on our potential. We think, you know what, my potential is this, and I can do this with this, and we can accomplish this, and I can spend that. We think about potential too much. It's not about what your potential is. It's about what your purpose is. Potential is wide, but purpose is narrow. There's a lot of things that you could be. And a lot of things, if you worked hard enough, you might could be that. But it's about what God has called you to do and who He has called you to be. Because consider Jesus. Jesus had the potential to be the King of kings on this earth. He had the potential to remove Herod or Pilate or, 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 or any king or emperor of Rome. He could have taken and He could have lorded over anybody and everybody. But His purpose was not to do that. His purpose was to die. On a cross. See, potential is distracting. Purpose drives us. And it creates a passion within us that is unrivaled by the world. On one occasion, Jesus saw the hearts of His people. He said, you know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. And they're great ones that exercise authority over the weak. And they're thinking, yeah, that's what we want to do. That's what you are made to do, Jesus. Your potential is so great. You can do whatever you want to do. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this because it's not going to be so with us. Our standard of greatness is how much someone is willing to serve, how much someone is willing to say no to themselves and yes to God because God's purpose is greater. Again, potential can be distracting, can it? Let me kind of explain this in a way that I think we can all relate to because I know I I go through this personally. You ever seen a, a woman that... She's, got, she's just so beautiful, and she's married to this guy that's like, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm a living example of this. And you think, her potential was so much higher. Potential 
is about looks. Purpose is about love. But the potential was so much more, but purpose said, no, 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 right here. Purpose says, look right here, because this is where God is leading you to. This is where love and passion is found. Here's the thing. That's what it means by having a whole heart. Once you get used to having a whole heart, you can't go back. Once you've tasted purpose, you can't live without it. Even if it means living without a lot of other things. The story goes that Nehemiah continued to work and he bought back out of slavery those that were taken under. But Nehemiah, if you read the story, every once in a while he'll say things like he does in verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I've done. Nehemiah had these voices in the back of his head. They said, Nehemiah, why are you doing all this? You ever have these? Why do you keep forgiving them? Why do you keep loving them? Why do you keep giving to them? Why do you keep serving them? Why do you, why do you, why do you, why do you keep doing this? It's not going to pay off. It's not going to be worth it. It's never going to happen. It's a waste of time. Why don't you just give up? Why don't you just walk away? Why don't you just go to what you think would be easier? Why don't you follow your potential, Nehemiah? Forget about this purpose thing. And it wasn't just his own voice on some days. Nehemiah faced opposition that told him, you just need to quit. This isn't worth it. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says that Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the heir of the rest of our enemies, heard that he was rebuilding the wall and it was being accomplished and growing the city, that there was no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors on the gates. Samballat and Geshem came to, sent messengers to me, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Nehemiah says, I was confronted, and every single day I had these voices saying, come down, come down, give up, give up, it's not worth it, your potential is greater somewhere else. Nehemiah, just move away from this, this endless task that you've been focused on for all these years. It's not worth it, Nehemiah. Just give up. Just come down. And Nehemiah's response is one for the ages. I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Nehemiah says, guys, I'm not going to lower my standards after I've accepted and tasted what God has for me. I cannot leave this great work. It doesn't look great to you. It's great to me. And I cannot come down because I am doing a great work and I'm not going to stop to entertain you. Whatever God has continued to lead you in your dream, your dreams, your family, your mission, your marriage, your job, your education, whatever you've been called to do, it's worth it. Because you're representing God. He's given you this calling. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Even down to your personal interest, God made you and wants to use you for His glory. Don't settle for a lesser path marred by compromise and cheating and quitting and wasting or settling. Every day that you rise up, you face your enemy. You, you face the, the, the things that are going to come against you. We need to be ready to, 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 to respond as we look at our family, our job, our path before us that God has put there, it's great work. It's a great work. 
The Bible is full of advice for every aspect that we should apply these truths, repair these gaps, and rise up. We should be even more reminded of the work we've got to do. He said, I am doing a great work. And they continued to ask Him four times and He answered the same way. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Whew. If only that was in our back pocket every time the enemy came. Let me say this before we, before we quit. You know, as a, as, a, as a church in our world today, it can be difficult doing the job God has called us to do. As a Christian, it can be difficult doing the job God has called you to do. I get that. It's hard work, isn't it? There was a time in the past when being a Christian was easier, maybe. There was a time in the past when the church had it easier, but it's not supposed to be easy. Read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. It's never been easy. And maybe in a time in our world, in our country, it seemed to be easier. It seemed like things were a little bit, you know, more, more people came together more easily. We get mad because it's hard. We resent people because we think they're making our job difficult. But shame on us. There's no joy when it's easy, just selfishness. When it's hard, that's what produces joy. And Jesus set that example for us. The Bible says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him endured the cross. Endurance means going against the current, going against the difficulty, because there's joy to be found in continuing that great work. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and in his joy, in his joy, can you imagine this? In his joy, he liquidated his entire estate and possessions to buy that field and he bulldozed it until he found the treasure because it was worth it. See, we can't even get past the selling stuff part, right? Oh, I don't know if there's joy in that. He says there's joy in giving up whatever it takes to find the purpose that God has called us to do. To fight for it. To work for it. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls, but he found one pearl. You hear that? He was looking for many pearls. He found one pearl, and he sold everything he had for that one. Woo! I mean, listen, the church may have had it easy in the past, and it might be difficult now, but the world can still be impacted. In fact, our impact can be deeper and wider. And maybe at some point in your past, your walk as a Christian was easier. Before kids, before the problem, before the sickness, before the difficulty, before the crash. I don't know. Maybe at some point in your past, it was easier. And you get a little bit upset because it's not that easy anymore. Maybe as a church, we get a little upset because it's not that easy anymore. Listen, we long for the old, easier days, but they aren't coming back. But Jesus is coming back. And our mission remains the same. Our job requirement is the same. If the world is so much worse, and it might be, if people are so much worse, shouldn't the church, shouldn't we be more determined than ever, more driven and more excited to represent the kingdom of God every single day? Yes, work gets tough. Yes, marriage is tough. Life is tough. But there's joy in the great work that God has placed you in. I think so. I think you know so. So let me ask you, why have you come down from your great work? 
Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But somebody has. You were running so well, weren't you? But something distracted you. Something talked you down. Something tempted you. Something caused you to regress. We, 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 we wouldn't be the first generation. Paul said to the Galatians, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying this truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Remember who called you? Sometimes we get ourselves in a slump. The guilt, the stress, and the baggage of regret sinks its teeth in us and we just sink down, don't we? The only solution to overcoming these things is to climb back up the scaffolds to God's work that He has called you to do. You're a child of God, aren't you? You're a child of God. The Spirit of God is living and breathing and active in you. And if you, are, if you live by the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit should guide our every next step. So what's the great work that you've come down from? You've had a bad day, a bad week. So what? It's behind you. Maybe the next step is just another step for you. Nehemiah's opponents created a fake narrative that tried to discourage him and stir up trouble, but Nehemiah held his ground. He said, Oh God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my heart. God calls us to a place of redemption and healing. He'll pick us up and reestablish our work. He'll make your heart whole if you give Him your whole heart. No matter the holes that may be in it. Your purpose is too divine. Your work is too great. They may be those that want to frighten you, but God wants to free you and He wants to strengthen you and use you for a great work. So you need to remember. You need to repeat. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Today can be a day of resolution for anybody. Maybe your next step is to return to whatever work you left off. Maybe it's to move forward to the first time in a, for the first time in a long time. Maybe it's to come to God and say, God, my next step is back to you. I'm going to ask Rex if he would come and play for us a verse or two of invitation. And maybe your response to this message is this. Here's my heart. My whole heart. Make me whole again. Show me my purpose. I don't want to accept anything less than your best. Maybe you don't know what's in front of you. But you know the next step for you is to move back toward where God has called you. Who He's called you to be and what He's called you to do. And if this is a message that is spoken to your heart, I pray that you might would have the courage... You might find find it within your heart to rise up and say, God, strengthen my hands for this great work. God, I've I've, I've quit. I've given up. I've compromised. But it's too great for me to walk away from. It's too important for me to walk away from. I see what purpose is, and I don't want anything less. So if you've come off the wall, if you've given up on your great work, maybe it's time to take a step back toward it. Because your marriage is worth it. Your family is worth it. Your dream, your vision, your goal in life, it's worth it. The church and the mission that we've been on, it's worth it. To say to any enemy that comes up against us, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And maybe it's about living that example and reestablishing yourself as a person of integrity, a person of values, a person that takes the word seriously and applies it just as Nehemiah did, just as we should. This invitation is for anybody that wants to say, God, make my heart whole again. So for these next few moments, as we bow our heads...